you're breathing. Because if you're breathing, that means you're still here. And if you're still here, that means you haven't accomplished what you were put here to accomplish. And if you hadn't accomplished what you were put here to accomplish, that means that your very purpose has not yet been fulfilled. Hey everybody, welcome to another week of funny business. Today with me, I have Andy Andrew from Creating Measurable Results. Andy, how are you? Good, good, Ken, how are you? I'm doing just dandy. So you're a public speaker. You try to help other people uh, get better results. I mean, fairly indicative from your company name. I'm really interested to see your journey from where you started to where you are now. What was your childhood like? Well, how did you grow up? What was what was all that? Uh, it was a very, very normal childhood. You know, had both parents and a sister and, and everything was really normal until I was about 19. Then both my parents died. My mom died in a cancer and my dad was killed in a car accident. So same year. And that's a crazy time, but I've always had the ability to take a bad situation and, and make it worse. And I did, I I made some bad moves and ended up literally homeless before that was even a word, you know, 30 something years ago, nobody was talking about homeless people, but I was sleeping under a pier on the Gulf coast and in and out of people's garages, which is not safe or smart, but there I was. So, okay, so how do you go from being homeless to being a national public speaker? I was interrupted one night by this old man. His name was Jones. We called him Jones. We didn't, we didn't uh, know where he was from. We didn't know where he stayed when he was there. We, we'd seen him around, but uh, he just kind of appeared under my pier one night. And uh, he was the first person in my life to tell me the truth about myself and, and really kind of have me face some realities. And he got me started reading. And uh, I, I had always been kind of a sports illustrated field and stream kind of person. And he got me started reading like biographies. And, and I, I read over 200 biographies and, and really began to, to see the, I guess to grasp uh, a behavior pattern in those lives. And, and I identified seven principles that they all had. And those later, they became the seven principles in, in my book, The Traveler's Gift. But, hmm. you know, at, at the time, I, I had always wanted to, to speak. I just didn't have anything to say. And, and I was very young and and so at the time, you know, the only thing I knew to do was to be a comedian. And, and this was before comedy clubs were everywhere. There weren't but three comedy clubs in America. You know, there was uh, Caroline's in New York and then, then the improv and the comedy store in LA. And so I would go and, and, and ask people that, that played music to let me go between their sets in the holiday Inn and, places like that and and worked my way up to where I I did a lot of colleges I toured with Joan Rivers for two years and and with Kenny Rogers for five and with Shaka Khan and Cher and and uh, Randy Travis and Garth Brooks and and so I, that that was the the pathway that was provided and and it was really around uh, the time I was with Kenny, and we were on a bus one night, and Kenny asked uh, 
about my growing up and, and I was telling him about living on the pier and, and he was telling me about growing up in Houston with 150 brothers and sisters in a garage or however many it was, it seemed like a ton of them. And, and I, I told him about these seven principles that I found. And he said, he said, well, you, you ought to start throwing those into your show. And I said, well, they're not funny. And he said, yeah, but you're a talker, you know, you can transition. And I said, so just be funny and then be serious. He said, yeah, and then be funny again. And so I asked him, I said, well, you want me to do it in your show? And he said, yeah, I think so. And so I, you know, he was touring arenas at that time and he was as big as anybody gets. And, and it was like me, the Oak Ridge boys and Kenny or me, Dolly Parton and Kenny. And, and I did 25 minutes before them. And, and, um, and I would, I would throw in some of that serious stuff. And, and I, I began to have people come up and, and say, Hey, how do we get in touch with you to come talk to our group or our corporation? And, and, um, and it was the serious stuff they wanted. They say, they say that, that the comedy is great, but, but can you do the serious stuff? And so uh, that was, it, it was a, an entree into that world. That is an absolutely incredible journey. Wow. I cannot imagine what it was like being friends, if not contemporaries, with Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers and all that jazz. Uh, as you say, did you tour with them on their buses or, or do, yeah, did you have a separate yeah. vehicle? Or No, well, no. I, I was on Kenny's bus. Kenny flew most of the time. And so uh, he would fly to the next place and I'd be on his bus. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and it, it was, uh, you know, it was a, a different kind of different time in my life. And, and, uh, Joan took me to Caesar's palace for the first time. And, and I, I did Caesar's with Kenny a couple of times. And, and, uh, so was that, that was, that was the, the entree to speaking though, because the, and as, as I became, more in demand as a speaker, I realized that it wasn't necessarily because I was that great. It's just that nobody was doing what I was doing because any speaker can tell a joke, but very few can deliver serious content with humor. So, so how do you, how do you stay on the cutting edge now? Because there are so many speakers now that some have developed that skill set of being able to go from serious back to funny and then back to serious, back to funny again. How do you, how do you stay in competition with them? Well, I, I don't compete with them. I, I generally am now uh, working with clients and I still speak. I still do that, but you know, I just, uh, I don't think there's any competition. I don't really get out there and try to, you know, beat the bushes for dates or, or anything like that. And, and so I just, I do the dates that come along and, and, uh, but I, I work with, with companies and I, I, I really decided a number of years ago that I had to do something that was more than just encouragement that, uh, you know, I feel like motivation is a myth. I don't have motivational speaker anywhere on anything of mine. And, and I, I feel like, you know, motivation is, is very temporary. 
And, and yet proof is something that lasts. If you prove something to somebody beyond a reasonable doubt, then, then that lasts. And it doesn't matter that they're in a group of people or uh, in a, the tone of your voice, uh, because if you, if you prove something to somebody, it has to be the truth. Uh, because anytime they begin to suspect it's not the truth, it no longer is proof and no, no longer holds any weight in their life. And so it was only by proving things that I, I began to create measurable results and, and to take companies and, and to help them grow significantly, uh, which wasn't happening before. Um, you know, I, I asked uh, my Speakers Bureau, I asked one time, I said, have you ever had somebody who consistently books $10,000 speakers, all of a sudden one year book a $50,000 speaker? And he said, no, never had that happen. And I said, why do you think that is? And he said, well, uh, because of their budget, you know, they don't have the budget for a $50,000 speaker. And I, I figured that's what he would say. And that's the that is true. It's just not the truth. Uh, it's true. It's just not the bottom line because the bottom line, the reason that, that most companies would never just all of a sudden go from 10,000 and book a $50,000 speaker is because they never got any results from the $10,000 speaker. And so it's, it, but it's, it's a matter of creating results. And, and if you, you know, I mean, you could get a million dollars if if the the proof is there that every time somebody speaks for a million dollars, the company makes fifty million in six months, and so that's what I began to look at is is how to create results that were provable and measurable, and and that that I was and so I, what I do is I help people compete in a way the competition doesn't know games going on. Okay, so for the folks listening at home, what would be like some entry level like KPIs that you really try and push and shake? You know, there's a way to compete with culture and a way to compete with human behavior that price and product can't touch. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean when when somebody is doing business with somebody uh, they don't always go for price and product. We've all paid more for something than we had to. We've all gone to more trouble to get something that we had to. And on the surface, that seems ridiculous, you know, that, well, I know I can get this for less, but I choose to pay more. Well, that seems kind of ridiculous, but the common denominator between all the other kind of behavior is somebody. You know, it's like, yeah, I know that Walmart's right across the street, but I will always go across town to that lady's store. Have I ever told you what she did for my grandparents 14 years ago? Mm -hmm. And so it's somebody. We're showing loyalty. We're showing um, uh, respect. We're showing a gratefulness. And and that that is a competitive edge. I like that a lot. Obviously, that's the same way that everybody experiences things. If you if you have a good experience with some person, you start to become loyal to that person. Um, and then that person is associated with the company. That makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, is that one of the seven things uh, that you developed 
No, the, the seven the seven decisions, these seven principles, they're things that I think that everybody's probably heard, but they they fall under the category of what most people know about them is true. It's just not the truth. Because the truth connotes a foundation. That that that's like the bottom of the pool. That's as far as you can go. But but people will stop at what is true because it's true. It's an answer. It gets results. Now, they may not be the best results, but because they're getting results and because they're in first or second place, they're not likely to go any deeper. And, and so the idea uh, with these seven principles is that <clears throat> there's more to them than people know. Uh, you know, for instance, the first one's responsibility. And, and so everybody, uh, when you say responsibility, everybody thinks they understand that. And I mean, we certainly hear the word all the time. You can't watch a ball game or read a newspaper without hearing that word. And yet responsibility is something that there are two extreme views on responsibility. And both of them are not totally correct. You know, the, there's one extreme view about responsibility that says until these people accept responsibility for where they are, they're never going to be able to. And you got the other extreme that says, but it's not their fault. Don't you understand what their parents were like? And, and so, you know, it, it's a mistake to go with either extreme because responsibility doesn't have anything to do with blaming people for where they are or making people feel bad about where they're coming from. You know, responsibility has to do with hope and control. And who doesn't want to have hope for a greater future they can control? And so if, if you're blaming your, your parents or you're blaming the president or you're blaming the weather or the economy, there's not a lot of hope there because there's no control. Right. I mean, if 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 where I've ended up in this horrible place really is the fault of the president of the United States, I might as well jump off a cliff. What am I going to do about the president today? You know, whoever the president happens to be, what am I going to do? But if I can look in a mirror and I can say, you know, I've had some crazy things happen in my life. I've had some tragedies happen and I couldn't control any of them. But I have made choices in response to those crazy things that have led me down a path to a place I don't like. If we can understand and believe that we can make choices that lead us to a place we don't like, that's great news. Because if you can understand and believe you can make choices that will take you to a place you don't like, doesn't it just make logical sense? You could also make choices that would lead you to a place you do like. And yeah. so the game becomes make better choices. And in essence, that's what the other, uh, other decisions are. What intentional choices did you make then? So you, you talked about the guy who talked to you down by the pier and had that big long talk with you. How long did it take you from that conversation to being able to make some intentional choices about how to change your life around? Well, I began to make the intentional choices, you know, pretty soon, but it's, uh, you know, life and turning a life around is a process. I, you know, sometimes I, I've been on 
television shows where they'll say as a home, as a former homeless person, you know, what, what uh, advice do you have? And, and it, it's kind of a disingenuous question because number one, there was no pathology with me. There, there wasn't any addiction or uh, mental illness. I just didn't have any money and I didn't have any backup. And so uh, I, sometimes I want to say move South, I, you know, don't stay where it's cold, you know, move to a small town. Because uh, because if, if you're the only homeless person in a small town, people will compete to help you, you know. Uh, but but the the thing about uh, that that thought process, you know, people will ask. They'll say, "So, do you really think that anybody can be successful?" And the the answer is yes, I do. Now, can the guy in the ditch be successful tomorrow? No, uh, the, because the guy in the ditch is going to have to change. And, and so I was the guy in the ditch and, and I, it took a while to change. And so the intentional process and the intentional choices were at first geared at me. Um, you know, one of the things that Jones said to me, he said, you should ask yourself every day, uh, what is it about me that other people would change if they could? Hmm. And so I began to ask myself that. What is it about, about you, Andy, that other people would change if they could? And that turned into, you know, what is it about the way you dress that other people would change if they could? What is it about the way you eat that other people, what is it about the way you walk into a room? What is it about the look on your face that other people would, and, and sometimes I would get answers and I'd think, well, I don't want to change that. But then I would remember that wasn't the question. The question mm. is what would other people change? And it's not to it's not to say that we should live our lives according to the expectations of other people it's a matter of becoming someone that other people are comfortable being around uh, you know mm -hmm. becoming a person that other people like to be around because if nobody wants to be around you there's there's no influence right and mm -hmm. and so it's it's an intentional thought process that started then that was really about myself and, and the choices about, you know, what I would read so that I would have something to talk to people about other than sports and fishing. And, and so it, it, it uh, you know, it, it is a choice to become culturally literate and, you know, be able to know a little bit about Shakespeare and a little bit about fishing and a little bit about football and a little bit about biology. And so, uh, you know, to, to be able to converse on different topics and to become more valuable to other people. I like that. I like the idea of becoming a jack of all trades. Uh, you People always stop that phrase of the jack of all trades and a master of none, but they never finish it with the last sentence of is better than a master of one. Yeah. Uh, people always forget yeah. that part, but it allows you to be diverse. It allows you to be able to have conversations with a multitude of people. It allows you to actually have something to contribute in any situation. I, uh, right. I and your that. passions will make you a master of two or three things. And, 
you know, if you're a master of two or three things, but you're a jack of all trades and you can talk about other things, I mean, that's, that's the key. I mean, whether you're a banker or an accountant or a mortgage broker, or real estate agent, I mean, it, you, you know, if you're a banker, you can't only talk about accounting. I, I mean, <laughs> it would just like kill people, right? And so yeah. you want people to take advantage of your banking skills. And so you become conversant in, in other areas so that you're an interesting person to be around. So what was some of the earliest mistakes that you made in intentionally creating who you are today? And what did you learn from them? I think one of the earliest mistakes that I made was to think more of myself than I should have. I, I, mm. I thought I was, I thought I was ready for certain things before I was ready for. And, and so I would get kind of bent out of shape at like, why am I not getting to do this? Or why am I not being able? And, and I, I realize now I look back and I realize now that as much as I thought I was ready, I was not ready. And had I had that opportunity at that time, I would have blown it and it would have never been available again. And so there's a, a, a thought process that, that goes toward always uh, becoming, always just uh, growing. And, and, you know, people talk about personal growth, and I think that a lot of companies talk about personal growth, but, but they don't really know what it is. They just know that they're supposed to talk about it and supposed to have their people in personal growth programs. But, but if... Mm. If, if you are personally growing, if you're becoming more and becoming better and learning more and becoming more culturally literate and more able to do with ease what you are wanting to do, then that, that is a process. You know, it's, I remember the first time that I got up on stage thinking that, I'm funny. And so I can, I can get up and, you know, I would see these guys on the tonight show and I think I'm funny. I can do that. But the first time I stood up in front of an audience, I realized there's a big difference in standing in, in, in doing something, being funny for your family and your friends. And there's a big difference in that and in being funny for people who don't care anything about you. And, you know, they, they just, it's, it's a different thing. And so yeah. I began to realize that only that growing, only that practicing, only that doing it over and over again was going to overcome that because truly the better a comedian or a speaker is, the better they are, the more they should look like they're doing nothing. Mm. That's fair. It should become so proficient that they don't even have to think about it. Yeah. And they, and, and, or maybe they think about it, but it, it looks very natural. It looks like just having a conversation. And, and so, uh, and there's, there's, there's ways to, to do that. And there's things that you learn to create an illusion of spontaneity even. And so, yeah. 
there's uh, it's it is uh, somewhat of an art and a science. Interesting. Okay. So this is kind of the bread and butter of funny business. Um, we ask this to everybody. The, I love the idea that every, there, somewhere in the world, there's always somebody who's doing what you're doing better than you. And we can always learn from everybody. And I love the, the phrase that uh, good artists create on their own or they borrow, but great artists steal. So what have you stolen for your business and how have you made it your own? I think the illusion of spontaneity is what I really caught on to quickly. And I, I realized, I mean, I realized watching Robin Williams years ago in the, in the comedy store and, and, you know, people would watch him on television. They'd watch him on the tonight show and they would go, Oh my gosh, he's just a wild person. He's just so spontaneous. But I had seen him do that exact thing six nights in a row at the comedy store. And, and so I began to understand that even spontaneity, it, it, if it's done correctly and it's consistent, it can be an illusion. And so I, I learn and, and the illusion, I mean, nobody ever in the history of the world has been witty enough to be spontaneous for six minutes on television and be funny for six minutes. That's just, it's just an impossibility. And so to, uh, to create the illusion of that. And so what, what I would do is I would, I learned that that was important mm -hmm. to, to create that conversational tone. And so what I would do is I would, I would back up and I would figure out like all the situations that could happen and what I was going to say. If, you know, if somebody ran across the room naked, if somebody had a heart attack in there, if somebody, you know, if the lights went out, I, you know, I had something to say and, and I could lead into routines that would make people feel like I, that just came out of the blue. I, I remember one that I would, uh, in fact, this still plays on, on the XM comedy channel. Um, they, I would be talking about television and I would say, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't have, uh, uh, we, when I was growing up, we had great animal shows and kids today don't have good animal shows. We, you know, uh, cartoons don't count. We had real animal shows. We had like Flipper, Flipper and Gentle Ben mm. and Flicka and Rin Tin Tin. And, and when I would do that, Somebody would always say, Lassie. And I would go, Lassie. Yeah, remember Lassie? And I had a five-minute routine that I would do about Lassie. Uh -huh. But but I would I would do that where somebody would go, Lassie. And I'd go, Yeah, Lassie. And and to the audience, it looked like, wow, somebody just said Lassie, and this guy did five minutes on it. Mm. And so so it was it was taking that illusion of spontaneity and learning how to harness it. So let's get into a little bit more nitty and gritty uh, of business. How do you personally achieve efficiency with your business? What shortcuts have you learned to be able to make your businesses run more smoothly? You know, uh, preparation, nothing beats preparation. 
And and I believe that that with the the preparation, it, there is a, a there is a, a longer term benefit of being able to know what is going to work, you know, because preparation physically becomes preparation in your mind. And, and so I have been able to shortcut a lot of the practice time that I used to spend because I've done so much in front of an audience or in front of a camera that, that I can think it through and I know what's going to work without having to go test it and test it and then do it and then test it again. I, you know, and so that, that has made me more efficient Hmm. being able to just notice the things that, you know, and, and I guess another way of answering that question, living based on principles has made my life more efficient. Mm. Uh, you know, th- th- there are principles that you decide. And if you live your life based on principles, then every time a question comes up, you haven't got a anguish over whether you're going to do it or not do it. Or, you know, and a simple example of that would be that, you know, there was, there are uh, principles that you learned uh, and that you decided on uh, at some point in your life, maybe it was your parents, maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was a, a religious leader, uh, but there were there were principles that you decided to live your to base your life on, and one of those was that you don't rob banks. Now this seems kind of silly, but if somebody came to you and said, "Kent, let's rob a bank," you're not going to say well, I need to talk to my wife about that, or well, I need to pray about that. I mean, you know, the answer is no. Yeah. And, and so, so the, the, the idea is that that can be expanded into a lot of areas that makes our lives a lot more efficient when we mm-hmm. hadn't got to sit in anguish over every question or what we're going to do, if we're going to do this, if we're going to, you know, it's, it's a, a matter of having a lot of it already decided. You are a super sought after speaker in general. Uh, You've been sought after for years and years and years now. What is the biggest takeaway that you wish that those in attendance of wherever you speak are going to take away going home? You know, I, I think in general, it would be proof that you matter, proof Mm -hmm. that your life matters. Um, Not just encouragement, but proof. And, and there is uh, there are many things that you can prove that people don't believe that there is proof for, and so they end up kind of hanging their lives out and and just uh, wandering basically. But when I'm saying proof, I'm talking about proof beyond a reasonable doubt, M- meaning not a mathematical proof, but the kind of proof where you hear something you hadn't heard or hear it in a way you hadn't heard it, you go huh, well, that makes total sense. I never thought of it that way. I, I guess I won't ever think of it any other way again. And, and so to create a proof of how much uh, you matter, which I did that um, at the request of the Air Force uh, a number of years ago, 
and they had been having uh, suicide issues that were way beyond the civilian population. And so uh, I was asked to create uh, something uh, beyond encouragement because they, they said that the experts were telling them that uh, these kids were making this attempt and sometimes succeeding, not when they were sad or depressed or angry, that they were making this move when they finally figured out in their minds that they didn't matter. So I'm depressed, I'm sad, I'm angry, and I don't matter, or that's it. And so, so the idea was, uh, you know, I was told at that time that, you know, we've, we've encouraged these guys until we're blue in the face. And, and so I had talked in front of this, this group of commanders uh, and generals and air commanders. I talked about proof and proof being uh, beyond encouragement. And so they, they called, or the USAFE commander, the four-star guy called and said, you know, it occurs to us that, it, that you could prove a life. C can you prove how much somebody matters? Because we've told them they matter, you know, till we're blue in the face and it's not working. And so how can we prove it? And so I took that and I, I created a, 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 a telling of a story that uh, eventually came, became my book, The Butterfly Effect. And, mm -hmm. and so when I, I created that story and that explanation, uh, they flew me into a, a combat zone and, and every general and wing commander in Europe and the Middle East came into this, this area and for a day taught them how, how to, to deliver this. And so it significantly affected that. And, and, and so to create proofs with uh, how much somebody matters is huge. I think a proof of hope is important for me to give people because so many people, they're, they're at a hard time in their life, maybe at the worst time in their life. And to be able to tell them that, that there is a proof of hope. There's not just hope, but there is a proof of hope. Uh, even at the worst time of your life, number one, you got to realize that everybody has one. Everybody has a worst time in their life. Maybe this is yours. I, you know, but you can look at every life from birth and to death and you go, well, there's the worst time right there. And, and so it, it, it usually continues on after that worst time. And so the proof of hope is that you're breathing. Because if you're breathing, that means you're still here. And if you're still here, that means you haven't accomplished what you were put here to accomplish. And if you hadn't accomplished what you were put here to accomplish, that means that your very purpose has not yet been fulfilled. And if your very purpose hadn't been fulfilled, that means the best part of your life, the most important part of your life, the coolest part of your life is still ahead of you. There is more laughter to enjoy, more success to earn, more children to help, more friends to influence, more to teach. There's more. And there's, there's proof that there is more just by the virtue of the fact that you sit here and breathe. That is, oh man, that is 
absolutely incredible. I I don't know how to top that, so I'm like hesitant to ask more questions. Uh, I've only got <laughs> I've only got one more before we go into uh, uh, the wrap up stuff. Um, but what is the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome in your field? I think I think the biggest challenge that I have had to overcome is is a is a thought process of of my own. It's hmm. the thought process that that tells us that we we can't do as much or that we uh, can't accomplish as much or that we aren't as good or that we aren't as competent and and it's a uh, you know I consider myself a, a strategic disruptor uh, because I know that our thinking is the that is the foundation of everything. It's our thinking. A lot of people say, well, you know, your choices are what determine where you end up, but your thinking determines your choices. Mm-hmm. And, and so your, your thinking, you know, one of the greatest paradoxes that exists is that, yeah, you're thinking. And if you, if you ever wonder if your thinking really determines your choices, think about every choice you've ever made and every choice you will ever make is totally determined by what you think, how much you think about it, what you decide you can't let yourself think about so that you won't be distracted from thinking about what you got to think about so that you can decide. I mean, it's your thinking. But the greatest paradox in the universe is that while our thinking determines our choices, you can choose how you think. Hmm. You can choose your thought patterns and you, you do that by choosing what you read, choosing what you listen to, choosing what you uh, watch, uh, choosing the people you're around. And perhaps uh, more importantly, you choose your thinking by choosing what you will not read and what you will not watch and what you will not listen to and who you will not be around. Uh, because those are the key things that affect our thinking. And, and so if we can, if we can be in control of our thinking and think upstream instead of downstream, you know, upstream is where all the pure stuff is. And that's a struggle to swim upstream. It's easy to swim downstream, but that's where all the garbage ends up. Mm -hmm. And, and the mistake we often make is we think, okay, well, I'm in a good place. I'm just going to tread water. Well, if you're treading water, you're going downstream. Yeah. You know, because if you're just floating, you're going with the current and life has a current all its own and, and you'll end up downstream. And so it's a, it's a consistent struggle uh, to, to capture our own thinking and certainly for me to capture mine. Uh, who is your ideal client? What would you want them to do to reach out to you? And where should they find out more information? My ideal client is a client that wants to grow exponentially. Um, you know, I had, uh, I, I have a client that, uh, that 
seven years ago, I, I went to them and I said, you know, you have great people and that's, that's a key for me. Great people. Right. And, and I, I told the CEO, I said, you have great people and I think you should be able to double your results in a year. And he said, yeah, that'd be great. Wouldn't it? And I said, well, I, I really think you can. He said, well, you know, we did 5.4 billion last year. And I said, yeah, I know. And I think you should be able to double that. And he said, well, you know, it took us 19 years to get to 5.4. I said, I know. And I think you can double it. And, and so we talked a little bit and I explained, uh, you know, a little bit about what I do and I explained how it would happen. And so on that, just like January 2nd or 3rd of that year, we, we signed a, a, a two-year deal at the time. And, and at the end of the first year, they were at 11.2, which is almost exactly a hundred percent growth, you know, and I didn't mean to hit it that closely, but, but uh, then the second year they did 17 billion, uh, the third year, 22, then 27, then 39, just this past year, they uh, ended at 65.9 billion and wow. that's a uh, fairway mortgage. And it's uh but they, you know, when we started, they had right at 700 employees. Right now, they're at about 10,000, and and wow. so it's it's my ideal client is is people who are open minded, you know, who have good people, and they're open minded about how they could grow. You know, I have another client that. Uh, they asked uh, a very good question. They're a fairly new client. They've been my client for eight months now. And so while we're talking, the CEO called me and he, he said, hey, I, I got two questions. And he said, one is, he said, you know, you're kind of known for doing things differently. And he said, so what if you suggest we do something and we don't want to do it? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I had never been asked that. I said, but that's a good question. I said, the bottom line is it's your company. Do you know, you don't have to do what I say. I said, however, I have done this enough now that I'm never going to suggest something that I cannot explain to you why it will work. And mm. you will understand why we're doing this and why it will work before we ever do it. And, and the other question he had, he said, now, you know, in our first meeting, you mentioned that there would be some necessary changes. And he said, how do you know already that there will be? I said, well, you know, why, why did you call me? And, and he said, well, we, you know, we've heard your reputation. We want to grow exponentially. I said, I said, so, so you're not totally satisfied with your level of growth now. Right. And he said, right. I said, okay, well, that's how I know there will be changes because right now your business is perfectly designed to produce exactly what it's producing. 
So if we wanted to produce anything different, there will be some, and generally it's different understandings. It's different behaviors. It's different understandings of clients and potential clients. And, you know, with in the case of the company I just referenced that, that uh, they finished at 65.9 billion this year, they haven't acquired anybody. There was no acquisitions to that. That was all organic growth. And, and so I, I have clients from uh, mortgage companies to banks to a gold mine uh, to a boat, uh, like a publicly traded boat company, a, um, a, a physician's thing, a spinal care place, uh, uh, a car automobile, you know, raft of those dealerships. One person owns a, a, a bunch of them. And, and so it's, you know, it used to concern me that I didn't really know uh, a lot about the industry, but now I understand that that's a benefit. You know, the, the first time I ever talked with uh, Nick Saban, uh, he asked me, he said, what is your experience? And I said, with football? And he said, yeah. And I said, I played in the sixth grade. <laughs> you know, I was number 25 with the Herd Elementary Rams. And I said, I don't really know a whole lot about football. I know what a fan knows. I said, but coach, I look at you and you're in the conversation for best of all time what seminar could you possibly go to? What, what consultant could you possibly hire that knows more about football than you know? But what I do is I help people compete in a way the competition doesn't know a game is going on. And so what I'm talking about doing is having you think in ways that you would not normally think yeah. so that there are other things that you can gather. Okay, so where should uh, the folks listening at home, where should they learn more about you? Yeah, andyandrews.com. Just andyandrews.com. And uh, they can join the VIP newsletter and and we'll keep in touch with them and it won't bug them too much. And and uh, but they can they can get me get me there. All right, guys, for those of you at home, thank you for watching. Please like and subscribe and make sure to share this with a friend who might be able to take just even a, a nugget or two of this and be able to apply this to their business. We'll see you next week. Want to learn the tricks of our trade? We have them all laid out in our courses on Harmon Brothers University. This isn't surface level stuff here. This is our entire playbook, all our secrets laid out in full, the same training we give our own employees. You'll find courses on ad buying, writing video scripts to sell your product or service, creating the kind of large production ads we're known for, even making short ads using nothing but your cell phone. If you're looking to use video marketing to take your business to the next level, Harmon Brothers University has the course for you. Our students have seen incredible growth in their businesses by implementing what they learned in our courses. Take these reviews as living proof. We've now got multiple campaigns that are in the millions of views and in the multiple millions of dollars in sales. Within a week, we're close to 10 million views, over a million in sales, and most impressively, we've covered 100% of the production costs in the first 24 hours of releasing it.
We saw immediate results. Sales went up 10x the first day. The first video we did is over 30 million views. The most customers that we've ever acquired in a single month. I think we hit about 26,000 new customers. Go to harmanbrothersuniversity.com to start accelerating your business's growth with video.